Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From here on out, our interruptions get more frequent but much shorter. We're top-lining the rest of these to save your time and our sanity. We have the epileptic seizure around 12.15 p.m. distracting the police, making it easier for the shooters to move into their places. The epileptic later vanished, never checking into the hospital. The guy's name was Jerry Belknap. He was interviewed by the FBI, and because he felt better after an aspirin and water, didn't have himself checked into the hospital after his ambulance ride. Red herring. Next. The A-team gets on the sixth floor of the depository. Now, they were refurbishing the floors in the depository that week, which allowed unknown workmen in and out of the building. They moved quickly into position, just minutes before the shooting. B-team, one rifleman and one spotter with the headset and access to the building, moves into the low floor of the Daltex building. The third team, the C-team, moves in behind the picket fence above the grassy knoll where the shooter and the spotter are first seen by the late Lee Bowers in the watchtower of the rail yard. So, of course, all of this ABC team stuff is total evidence-free nonsense, and neither the aforementioned Lee Bowers nor anyone else could find so much as a footprint indicating anyone had been in the area in question after the shooting. The first shot rings out. Sounding like a backfire, it misses the car completely. Frame 161, Kennedy stops waving as he hears something. Connie's head turns slightly to the right. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy in the throat from the front. Frame 225, the president emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. The third shot, frame 232, hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Conley, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238. The fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Craig down by the underpass. Not going deep here, but suffice it to say he's conjuring up bullets based on the fact that Kennedy's involuntary and Connolly's voluntary reactions to being hit by the same shot don't occur at the same time, which any neurologist will tell you is very likely to happen since the president's wound was near the spine and the governor's was not. And the tag thing, as noted before, is nonsense. Car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. Oh my god, he's gonna say it! Calm down, you weirdo. President going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again. Back to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back 
and to the left. Okay, still on a timer. First, Buliosi's detailed analysis proves there is a slight forward motion to the president's head on impact, but then a combination of another neuromuscular response that would tend to jerk his head back, as well as the fact that a bullet weighing a third of an ounce pushing the head forward would be more than counteracted by the spray of blood, brains, and skull jetting forward into the right, which would push the head... which direction? Back and to the left. Oh, that's right. Also, as Biliosi points out, if the shot came from the front, why would the grotesque spray of material explode back in that same direction? In other words, if they say the shot came from the front, shouldn't the brain have exploded out the back of his head? You know, now that you mention it, that does seem obvious and really, really gross. At least 12 other individuals were taken into custody by Dallas police. No record of their arrest. Men acting like hobos were being pulled off trains, marched through Dealey Plaza, photographed, and yet there's no records of their arrest. In a bit of serendipity that probably would have left Stone chastened if he had any shame, in 1992, one short year after this film came out, a journalist discovered the arrest records of these three supposed conspiracy figures masquerading as tramps from the day of the shooting. The authorities and press tracked down and interviewed the two who were still living, and the sister of the deceased third. Turns out they were just hobos. We could tell you their names here, but, well, what good would that do? They were transient dudes with nothing to do with the assassination. And where was Lee Harvey Oswald? Around 12.15, on her way out of the building to see the motorcade, Secretary Carolyn Arnold sees Oswald in the second floor snack room, where he said he went for a coke. He was in a booth on the right side of the room. Um, he's by himself, as usual, and appeared to be having his lunch. Uh, I didn't speak to him, but I recognized him clearly. Garrison couldn't have heard this story during the trial depicted in the film, since it took place in 69, and Arnold didn't make this statement about seeing Oswald sitting at 1215 on the second floor till 78. Not only does this later testimony contradict her statements to the FBI in 63, when she placed Oswald on the first floor, but it also conflicts with Oswald himself, who told the police he ate lunch on the first. Numerous other employees ate lunch around that time on the first or second floor. None saw Oswald. At the same time, Bonnie Ray Williams is supposedly eating his chicken lunch in the sixth floor. He's there until 12.15, maybe 12.20. He sees nobody. Actually, Williams testified he was headed down in an elevator from the sixth floor with other workers for lunch when they passed Oswald on the fifth, heading up. Lee asked them to send the elevator back up. You guys silly? I'm still gonna send it. Possibly thinking about his eventual getaway, but they didn't. Honor Rollins down the street, he's looking up, he sees two men in a six-floor window, presumably after Bonnie Ray Williams had finished his lunch and left. Well, in one of his versions, he saw two people. In others, he saw one. He kept changing his statement, and he was known to be a serial exaggerator, and his wife didn't believe him. John Powell, prisoner on the sixth floor of the Dallas County Jail season. Quite a few of us guys saw them. Everybody was hollering and yelling and all that. We thought there was security guys. Another 1978 HSCA era testimony jammed into this supposedly 1969 trial. Powell apparently chose not to mention what he saw when the sheriff's office asked for witnesses from the jail who saw the shooting at the time of the assassination. His claims 15 years after the fact aren't supported by any other eyewitness testimony. 
If Oswald was the assassin, he was certainly pretty nonchalant about moving himself into position. Later, he told Dallas police he was in the second floor snack room. Probably told to wait there by his handler for a phone call. What's this handler bullshit? Okay, I've seen enough courtroom dramas to take this one on. Uh, objection, your honor. Recall as facts, not in evidence. Speculation. This whole fucking system is out of order. I have listening skills. Shut up, judge. I rest my case. A maximum 90 seconds after Kennedy is shot, patrolman Marion Baker runs into Oswald in that second floor lunchroom. Hey, you! You know this man is in employee. Yes, he is. The president's been shot. But what the Warren Commission would have us believe is that after firing three bolt-action shots in 5.6 seconds, or, you know, 8.3, Oswald then leaves three cartridges neatly side-by-side in the firing nest, wipes the rifle clear of fingerprints, stashes the rifle on the other side of the lock, sprints down five flights of stairs past witnesses Victoria Adams and Sandra Stubbs, who never see him, and shows up cool and calm on the second floor in front of Patrolman Baker. All this within a maximum of 90 seconds of a shooting. This is actually true, at least in terms of Baker meeting Oswald on the second floor within 90 seconds. What it doesn't point out is that in a reenactment for the Warren Commission, stand-ins for Oswald were able to make that same journey Costner just described at a normal-paced walk in 78 seconds. Running, they did it in 46. As for Ms. Adams and Stiles, it turns out they didn't actually head downstairs until three or four minutes after the third shot based on comparisons among their and other employees' testimonies. So they would never have been on the stairs when Oswald was. Assuming he is a sole assassin, Oswald is now free to escape from the building. The longer he delays, the more chance the building will be sealed by police. Is he guilty? Does he walk out the nearest staircase? No. He buys a coat. And at a slow pace, spotted by Mrs. Reed on the second floor, he strolls out the more distant front exit where the cops have gathered. You know, it's almost as if he's trying to remain calm and not draw attention to himself or his crime. Mysterious. Oddly, considering the three shots have been fired from there, nobody seals the book depository for 10 more minutes. Oswald slips out, as do several other employees. Wait, you can't have it both ways. Either shots came from elsewhere, in which case the conspiracists would want to draw attention to the depository by locking it down ASAP, or the shots did come from the depository, in which case there would not be a conspiracy, and any delay in closing the depository would logically be explained by concern for public safety, bureaucratic inertia, and understandable chaos and confusion. Of course, when he realized something had gone wrong and the president had been killed, he knew there was a problem. He may have even known he was passing. Uh, objection again! The president killed, in spite of his warning, the phone call that never came. Perhaps fear now came to Oswald for the very first time. Oh, this bullshit. So an FBI security clerk in New Orleans named William S. Walter claimed, five years after the fact, that on November 17, 1963, he received a teletype from headquarters warning that they had credible info of an assassination attempt planned for the president's Dallas trip. A search of 59 FBI field offices yielded no evidence that this document ever existed or was sent to anyone. Walter later produced a copy, which was then proved to be a forgery. 
So Oswald returned to his rooming house around 1 p.m., a half hour after the assassination. A man shot the president. He puts on his jacket, grabs his 38 revolver, and leaves at 104. Officer Tippett is shot between 110 and 115, about a mile away. Oswald is next seen by shoe salesman Johnny Brewer lurking along Jefferson Avenue. He goes into the Texas theater, possibly his prearranged meeting point. But though he has $14 in his pocket, he does not buy the 75 cent ticket. And Brewer has the cashier call the police. In response to the cashier's call, at least 30 officers in a fleet of patrol cars descend on the movie theater. Now this has to be the most remarkable example of police intuition since the Reichstag fire. And I don't buy it. They knew. Someone knew Oswald was going to be there. First, that gratuitous Nazi reference to the Reichstag was gross. Second, maybe so many officers descended on the place so quickly because they were already about a half mile away at the site where Oswald had just murdered Officer J.D. Tippett. Not exactly surprising that they'd respond to a nearby sighting of a suspect who fit the cop killer's description very quickly and with overwhelming force. By the time the sun rises the next morning, he is booked for murdering the president. The whole country, fueled by the media, assumes he is guilty. Under the guise of a patriotic nightclub owner out to spare Jackie Kennedy from having to testify at a trial, Jack Ruby is shown into an underground garage by one of his inside men on the Dallas police force. And when he is ready, Lee Harvey Oswald is brought out like a sacrificial lamb and nicely disposed of as an enemy of the people. Jesus, that whole thing was just embarrassing. Based on all available evidence, Ruby was both impulsive and violent enough to spontaneously decide to off Oswald, unstable enough to do it for some weird combination of sparing Jackie a trial, misplaced patriotism, and a will to prove that, in his words, a Jew has guts. And most importantly, Ruby's crossing path with Oswald was not a conspiracy, but a weird coincidence of timing. Ruby was familiar with the police station as he'd hung out with local cops. He made his own way up a hidden ramp to the garage where they happened to be transferring Oswald, getting to the top four or five seconds before Oswald passed by. In Ruby's own words to the Warren Commission, If it had been three seconds later, I would have missed this person. Had I gone the way I was supposed to go, straight down Main Street, I would never have met this fate because the difference in meeting this fate was 30 seconds one way or the other. What kind of scenario is that for a conspiracy to dispose of a patsy? The American public has yet to see the real x-rays and photographs of the autopsy. Why? There are hundreds of documents that could help prove this conspiracy. Why are they being withheld or burned by the government? Each time my office or you, the people, have asked those questions, demanded crucial evidence, the answer from on high has always been national security. Again, quickly, the autopsy photos haven't been released because the Kennedy family requested they not be, as they are disturbing, and they don't want them plastered everywhere. However, there are detailed, realistic, horrifying drawings of all autopsy photos available for everyone. They're reproduced in the Warren Report. While the nation hadn't seen the Zapruder film in 1969 when the trial was going on, it was broadcast and widely available by 1975. 
And as for those documents, the Warren Commission actually wanted them to be released as soon as possible. They were only being held based on standard policies for government records, under the rules of which confidential materials are, by default, held for 75 years. Thanks to legislation spurred at least in part by this film, nearly all of these records have now been released years ahead of schedule. And as a result, the conspiracy community has produced solid, tangible, smoking gun evidence of the real plot. And we'll hear it starting now. Yep. As suspected by those who support the Warren Commission's findings, the documents have shed some additional light on the events and are certainly important for historians, but they haven't turned up any credible evidence for a conspiracy. And with that, the defense rests. Look, there's absolutely no way we can provide a comprehensive refutation of every Kennedy conspiracy claim. But hopefully the above gives you an idea of how questionable the most recognizable pro-conspiracy document, at its most confident-sounding, can be. But before we move on to talk about the real history behind the trial that Stone gave a hagiography handjob to in his film, we want to touch on a few other popular JFK conspiracies. Rose Sheremy. You might remember this as the scene that arrestingly kicks off the movie JFK, where a woman is pushed from a moving car, eventually found and brought to a hospital. Well, her name, or at least her favorite pseudonym, was Rose Sheremy, and she's one of the witnesses whose story Buliosi thinks Posner gave raw deal in his book Case Closed. Reading this inter-historian slapfight is highly amusing. Jesus, what's wrong with you? But the point is, Posner implies that the doctor, who's depicted in the film as overhearing Sheremy's ravings days before the assassination, didn't actually see Sheremy or hear her story until after the assassination. Buliosi demonstrates this isn't true, but on the other hand, doesn't give an inch on the veracity of Sheremy's story or on the irresponsibility of the way Stone presents it. As he narrates it, Sheremy was brought to the ER after being hit by a passing car because she was wandering down the street in a drugged-up haze. Note, not pushed from a car. And that, after she was admitted, her first babblings stated, in no uncertain terms, She was going to pick up some money, pick up her baby, and kill Kennedy. Later, her story implied that some men with whom she claimed she had recently kept company, and who were Italians, or resembled Italians, would actually do the killing. Then, killing Kennedy was a rumor that she had heard was going around the criminal underworld. She eventually claimed to have been a stripper for Ruby at a club called The Pink Door. Which she never ran, and which may never have existed. And that's why she knew that Ruby and Oswald were, in the parlance of the time, queer sons of bitches, who had been shacking up for years. We're quoting here. As Mr. Buliosi notes, even though the HSCA followed a huge number of tenuous conspiracy leads, they abandoned this one because it was so flimsy, relying on the memory of Sheremy, who was a heroin addict who was frequently disoriented, and whose rap sheet included 51 arrests, ranging from public drunkenness, vagrancy, prostitution, and driving under the influence of narcotics, to larceny, driving a stolen auto across state lines, and arson. 
Plus, her story changed constantly. So anyway, there's plenty of reason to distrust Sheremy's testimony without fudging the timeline. Shame on you, Mr. Posner. And to think, we framed your rookie card. Another of the more popular theories, not touched on directly in the Costner screed, is that the Mafia was behind the assassination. This idea, which had some small currency in the years after the assassination, got kicked into high gear in the wake of the HSCA investigation, several of whose members were convinced of a Mafia connection. This conclusion has the advantage over the other theories of at least involving actual criminals in its conspiracy. And the most cogent of the pro-mafia arguments is probably that put forward by Dan Muldea, who we referred to earlier as the hero of the RFK assassination. He's the guy who figured out how to square the circle with Sirhan's murder of the senator, covered extensively in our last episode. So we're going to use his excellent book about the mysteriously disappeared former Teamster leader, the Hoffa Wars, as our touchstone for the Mafia-focused JFK conspiracies. It's not as if Muldea is completely convinced that the Mafia had Kennedy killed. It seems more like he's angered that everyone from the Warren Commission to the HSCA failed, in his opinion, to properly follow up on evidence that should have made certain Mafia figures into suspects. For example, There's solid evidence, as well, that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante, three of the most important targets for criminal prosecution by the Kennedy administration, had discussions with their subordinates about murdering President Kennedy. Associates of Hoffa, Traficante, and Marcello were in direct contact with Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner who killed the lone assassin of the president. The book focuses on Hoffa, the infamous Teamster leader and organized crime figure, whose disappearance in 1975 has never been solved and has led to about a million jokes your dad or grandfather has made. According to a, a, according to a new book by the driver of the former Teamster boss, Jimmy Hoffa, this guy says Jimmy Hoffa was whacked by the mob. That's what he said. He says the mob killed Jimmy Hoffa. What a shocker, huh? <laughs> See, I had my money on alien abduction. I can't believe. Because Hoffa in particular really hated the Kennedy brothers, especially the anti-mafia crusading Bobby, there's plenty of juicy stuff about his actions and plans, both covert and open, against the then-Attorney General. For example, in September of 1962, a Teamsters official turned government informant related a conversation he'd had with Hoffa the previous month. Reportedly, Hoffa had been evaluating the merits of two assassination plans for Robert Kennedy. In the one he preferred, Kennedy's Virginia estate would be firebombed using plastic explosives. Hoffa was careful to note that even if Kennedy somehow survived the explosion, he, and all his damn kids, would be incinerated since the place will burn after it blows up. Charming. There are other extremely tenuous mob connections that Moldea points out, like the possibility that David Ferry, who we'll learn more about in the Garrison trial, was on the payroll of New Orleans Mafia Don Carlos Marcello. But given that there's no real reason, outside of Jim Garrison's mind, to imagine that Ferry and Oswald knew each other, beyond a chance meeting, this allegation doesn't add up to much. Instead, the key reason, as Moldea points out, that Hoffa ended up associated with the assassination story is the fact that Jack Ruby killed Oswald. And Ruby had, as it turns out, been in contact with Barney Baker, a Hoffa enforcer from Chicago, when Ruby was seeking help for a labor dispute at his Dallas clubs. In spite of the fact that the Teamsters was near the top of the list of organizations that would end up benefiting from Kennedy's death, Moldea continues, they were never fully investigated by the Warren Commission, not even the Ruby Baker calls. Ruby wasn't asked about them, and nobody ever discussed certain discrepancies with Baker, either. Moldea asks some interesting questions about these calls. Why did Ruby think that Jimmy Hoffa's men could help him with his small-time nightclub? 
How did he manage to have the unlisted numbers of people such as Barney Baker? Why did the calls occur at the times they did? Why did Baker deny receiving a second call from Ruby? If he didn't field the call, who did and why? In crafting potential answers, Moldea points to Ruby's friendships from his Chicago days in the late 40s, which included notorious hitmen, and to the rather ironic fact that the Warren Commission quoted some of those very same guys as character witnesses confirming that Ruby's underworld ties weren't significant. However, even after raising these interesting questions, and in spite of the fact that the man personally believes the mob was involved, he comes down on the side of caution in seeing how it all adds up. Regardless of Ruby's bizarre telephone calls, and regardless of this guy knows that guy, therefore, theories, the subject of a possible connection of Jamie Hoffa and the underworld to President Kennedy's assassination is, of course, highly speculative. But it has so far been as poor in streetwide methodical investigative work as it has been rich in tempting conspiracy theory melodrama and chilling irony. One aspect, however, goes far beyond speculation. The cold bureaucratic numbers that represent the flaming heat which the Kennedy administration brought to bear on Jimmy Hoffa's criminal empire and an organized crime in general. When you get down to the core of Moldea's accusation, it's basically a more sane version of many other assassination theories. These people benefited so much from Kennedy's death, it seems weird that they didn't have anything to do with it. He quotes Ralph Salerno, a police mafia expert, who notes, Bullet that killed John Kennedy killed Bob Kennedy's dream to destroy the organized crime society. Or to simply quote the thug himself, Hoffa told a reporter on the day Ruby killed Oswald, Bobby Kennedy is just another lawyer now. As you might expect, there are responses to the mafia allegations, pointing out that while there were tantalizing leads, there's not much meat on those bones. For example, Posner asks why, if Ruby had a contract on Oswald, he wouldn't have shot him during that weird midnight press conference, when the target was just a few feet away and Ruby, by his own testimony, was armed. Curious. In addition, one of Ruby's first jailhouse visitors was Joseph Campisi, reputedly Dallas' number two mafia figure. He knew Ruby well and visited along with his wife. No crime reporter or author Posner interviewed could recall an instance where a mafia figure arranged a contract and then met with the shooter in jail. Giuliosi, while generally in agreement, chides Posner for his suggestion that the mafia may have wanted to kill Kennedy, but Oswald beat them to it. Giuliosi isn't having it. These experienced thugs hired Ruby the blabbermouth, and then their hired gun shoots Oswald in the guts, not two taps in the back of the head, in front of witnesses so he'll definitely be caught. And those witnesses are all law enforcement? The only similarity between Ruby's actions and standard mob operating procedure is the fact that a handgun was involved. But that's also the weapon used in the majority of U.S. gun homicides. And over the entire history of the mafia in the U.S., they have no history of hitting public officials, Hoffa's bloody fantasies aside, and they've gone to significant lengths to avoid doing so. Before we leave this topic, we want to offer a charming note that Teamster leader Frank Chavez wrote to a mourning Robert Kennedy. Sir. This is for your information. The undersigned is going to solicit the membership of our union that each one donate whatever they can afford to maintain, clean, beautify, and supply with flowers the grave of Lee Harvey Oswald. You can rest assured contributions will be unanimous. What a classy outfit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.